Welcome to the Happy Mindset Podcast. Today's episode is episode number 61. And today's episode title is called Time Travel Stories. So today I'm joined by Jody Lane. Jody is the author of a time travel adventure series of five books. In these series, the main characters go back in time to different parts of the world in order to change the future. This genre of book is historical fiction. It's the first time I've come across this type of book. And it was very interesting to hear the process that goes into this, the research that's done, and how Jody manages to combine her imagination with uh, real-world things that have happened in the past. On today's episode, Jody shares some insights around techniques that she uses as a writer to actually get stuff done and to publish books. Jody has got a full-time job that isn't writing. She also has a family, so she shares some insights around how she has made her dream become a reality while at the same time living in a real world as well. So I hope you get some insights around this. There's some very simple things that she recommends that I would recommend doing today. If that's your ambition to become a writer, there's no real excuse that stops you from doing it other than not taking the action and just take some small actions and you'll be surprised in a year from now, in three years from now, where you'll be. Towards the end of the podcast, Jody shares some insights around postnatal depression. So she went through that with her first child and on today's podcast she talks about the process of writing some short stories that helped her to process and assimilate that experience better and how sharing it in public helped her and it helped other people as well at the same time. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope you get some information that you can apply to your life and yeah, hope you enjoyed today's episode. Speak soon. Okay, so thanks for joining us today, Jody. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you on. So my first question is, who are you and what are you doing in the world today? My name is Jodie Lane and I am a writer. I write time travel adventure fiction, time travel adventure novels, uh, but I also write some, some short stories. I am a mother of two young humans who take up a lot of my time and energy and I also work for an IT company. We do uh, software development. So there's a few different aspects to me, but uh, it's the writing that's that's my passion, really. That's my creative side. So when did the writing come about? When did you write your first novel? Ooh, that was about 2014. So five years ago, I was talking to a colleague about how much I loved the idea of being an author and, you know, one day I'd be rich and famous and flying the world doing talks and whatnot. And he said, do you like the idea of of being a writer better than you actually like writing, which kind of embarrassed me into going, all right, I shouldn't just talk about this, I'll actually do it. So I've always loved history. I did a history degree at uni, a massive history nerd, and I couldn't pick one area of history that I want to write in, so I decided on time travel and I picked times and places, well, not times, obviously. I picked places where I had actually been, times that I was interested in. So. Five years ago, I wrote my first book, which is called The Siege of Masada, and it is set in ancient Israel. There was a famous last stand by the Jews against the invading Romans, and everyone at Masada, at the fortress of Masada, uh, commits suicide rather than surrendering. I had been to Masada in Israel, and I thought it was a pretty interesting historical uh, time, so I chose to set my first novel there, and I have written one book a year since. It's cool. So you've actually been to the places that you you write about. Yes. Yep. So Masada uh, in Israel is the first one I visited there when I was younger. 
I lived in Romania uh, when I was 18 teaching English. So my second book is set in Wallachia and Transylvania, which is part of modern day Romania. But I write about Vlad the Impaler or Vlad Dracula. My third book is set in ancient Rome. I've holidayed in Europe, have been to Rome. Uh, the fourth book is set in Renaissance Italy, so it's in a few other cities in Italy. And my fifth book is the only book that I haven't actually been to some of the places there. It's set in Spain, and while I've been to Barcelona, I, I had to talk to a friend who's living in Bilbao and ask them quite a few questions about the city to get a bit of background. But I research all the history quite extensively. I sneak back into my university library and access a lot of the resources there to um, get the material and I do quite extensive uh, research on the internet as well. So I try base the modern times on the places that I've actually been and write about some of my own experiences in going to these places and they make their way into the novels. Uh, but all the history I try research quite extensively. So when you wrote your first novel, did you commit to writing the, the next three or did it organically, more organically happen? I originally had the idea that I'd like to write a quite extensive series, uh, but when I got about three books in, which sounds like it happened fairly quickly, it didn't, I realised uh, that the character arc of my main character would be tied up in about five books, and it's something that I think about a lot more now. I just, in the first book, I opened up this adventure. My main character, she appears in all my novels, I started her off this on this adventure. She gets thrown back into time, into time, in time, and has to survive. But after a few adventures, I realise it's not just about having it's it's not episodic in the way that you would have a book or a TV show where the same things happen every episode, but in different settings. This series is a lot more about the character arc of my main character and it happens in different settings and in different times but it's about what happens to her as a person and how she grows as a person so I didn't have the intention of a set number of books it worked itself out fairly organically to, to be five books and a few short stories as well so. okay so where does your main character come from when like what's she based off of She's based on me. She's a younger version of me. Uh, she, in the first book, she's 19 years old and she's doing a history, history degree at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, which is where I studied. And she's like me in that she's a bit of a dreamer. She, wanted, she wants to escape suburbia. I'm sure Australia might seem exotic to people who haven't been there, but when you've grown up in the suburbs of Brisbane, it seems quite dreary and boring and somewhere like Europe seems very exciting. Uh, so Gwyn is definitely a younger version of me. I got to travel with my family when I was younger. I was very, very fortunate that my parents not only took us on holidays overseas but also encouraged me to travel after school, which is why I went to, I taught English in China and then in Romania and I've backpacked in South America, Central America. I've been to Egypt, South Africa, North America, Europe. So that, uh, yeah, Gwyn is very much me, the younger me wanting that adventure, wanting to get out of her humdrum life and, you know, find adventure. 
find love, interests, things like that. So um, she's also a bit naive, like I was at that age. Yeah. So how has travel helped you to, to write your books? Like what sort of key lessons have you learned about people through your travels? The main thing is that I have learned from traveling is that people are people no matter where you go. And obviously I'm very fortunate. I live in a first world country. We have free healthcare. You know, the hardest thing I had to deal with this evening was my, my camera not working for this podcast. And I, yeah, oh gosh, <laughs> that's what problems. Um, whereas traveling has definitely opened my eyes to how people live, uh, how the other half, more than the other half, live. And it's very much made me appreciate the things that I do have and not take for granted things as simple as clean water or, yeah, free healthcare, things like that. Gwyn is naive like I was in that she sees the adventure side of it. She sees the glamour, uh, you know, even the going back in time, as stressful as it is, it's still exciting, it's romantic. But then there's the dirt. Then there's the no toilets. There's, um, you know, the food that doesn't always agree with you and makes you sick, all that kind of stuff. It's travelling. Oh, yeah, it might seem great riding around on horses and then it takes weeks and weeks to get anywhere. So there's definitely that aspect um, to my travel experiences, how I first thought they were exciting and romantic. And they still can be. I've learned to see them in a different light. But when I was younger, I, I got disillusioned uh, some of the time by not finding the romantic, the exciting wherever I went. And as I got older, I learned you had to look at things a different way. And getting to some of the best things about travelling is just getting mandatory random little acquaintances that you make or even strangers that you interact with. Uh, that's, that's the best bit. And that's what I mean by people are people. Some people are cranky and selfish and some people are just so helpful when they don't have to be. They just are wonderful. And I've been really lucky to experience both sides of that. So how about the unromantic sides of writing? Like what sides of writing do you <laughs> have to look at differently? Uh, the the romantic idea of being a writer and I'd be in my beautiful study with my books around me. Uh, the unromantic side is going, right, I want to write a thousand words. I've got an hour to do it. I'm just going to sit down and churn out. I'm just going to write. Even if I think it's rubbish, I'm just going to churn out words. Or editing. Oh, God. I do enjoy editing more these days, but at first it was so painful because it's not creative it's mechanical and painstaking and you have to be ruthless with what you write and sometimes I've had to throw out tens of thousands of words and you go but but it's such a waste mm-hmm. but it's still it's it's part of the the craft as wanky as that sounds <laughs> it's it's not just the creative side uh, as you get more experienced you learn to enjoy both sides, uh, but writer's block. <laughs> Some people say there's no such thing. Good for them, I say. <laughs> Good for you if you've never experienced it. But plenty of times I just, I've just been like, I have no idea what's happening next. And you learn techniques to get around that or get past it or get through it. So 
it can become a very mechanical thing sometimes writing. Sometimes I'll just say to myself, just 100 words, just put 100 words down, doesn't matter what they are, and then you're 100 words further on than you were yesterday. So it can be very mechanical and quite painful sometimes. Yeah, what are some writer block techniques? You, I think you mentioned one there, going for the 100 words instead of the 1,000 words. But do you have any other techniques that work for you? Yeah, absolutely. I am much better at using quiet time now so that I'm, if I'm driving, for instance, and I don't have screaming children in the car, I often think about what's happening next. So I will be thinking about what I've just written and I'll wonder, right, what are these characters going to do next? What are the conversations they're going to have? Where do they need to get to? So next time I get to my computer, my subconscious has had all that time to stew over the, the thoughts that I've had about where these characters are going and what they're doing. And then by the time I get to sitting down and writing it, I at least have an idea of where they're going and I can just start writing rather than waiting till I get to the computer and then starting to think about it. Uh, it's amazing what your subconscious can achieve when you just throw out a few bones and then let it stew on it. And, um, yeah, I find that quite useful, actually. Um, or even if I'm having a hard time falling asleep or something like that, I'll still, yeah, just think, all right, what's Gwyn doing next? What's Michelle doing next? Where do they have to go? Who are they going to meet? What are the conversations they're going to have? And uh, go from there. So listen to the one thing I'm curious about is that do the character do you grow as a result of the characters growing or do the characters grow as a result of what you've already grown in the areas you've grown in? That's an excellent question, and I'm actually really glad you asked that because I hadn't thought about it, but I want to answer it. Definitely, the characters grow. I think that's a natural result of becoming more practiced as a writer and going to classes and seminars and just just practicing. I'm in a really good writers group and we um, very supportive talk about writing techniques and give feedback and critique. Uh, so naturally I'm trying to write more complex characters, more interesting characters, more human characters. There's nothing worse to have a character. It's not things worse. It's real exaggeration. Um, but it's, it's, it doesn't feel good to have a character that someone goes, they're very two-dimensional, they're just cliche, they're a villain, there's nothing more to them, you want to know why. Uh, on the flip side of that, I, because I've, I've struggled with some mental health issues over the last few years, I have found writing to think of myself as a character sometimes helps and no one wants to read about someone who nothing ever happens to. So when things do happen to me in my life, and again, you know, I'm very privileged. I haven't had to deal with horrendous circumstances or anything, but when stuff does happen, I remind myself that it's, as trash as it sounds, it's, it is character building. And what would I think if I was reading me as a person about the choices that I was making? And while I can be kind to myself in that I'm fallible and I do stupid things sometimes and I don't always behave in a way that I would want my kids to see or my friends to admire. I It just reminds me that I have a choice about how I can behave, that I'm not just controlled by circumstances, that if I'm writing my own story, 
I do have some control over how I react to things around me. So I definitely would say that I have become a more developed character as a result of writing, mm. for sure. Yeah, I think sometimes you can actually, even though it seems weird to start with, thinking about yourself in the third person gives you some distance so you can observe your reactions because when you're in your reactions, you're in it. You can't really do anything. Mm. So you do need that third person perspective to pull you out of the reaction. That's quite interesting. For sure. You probably get that from writing in your characters. It, definitely because, I mean, I'm fairly... Most people who write tend to have a certain level of introspection uh, and I tend to be fairly self-analytical. It brings that extra step away, that extra objectiveness when you think about yourself in the same way that you might think about your characters and that can be really helpful um, in distancing yourself from things that might be upsetting you uh, so you can make a bit more... But, just understand why you're behaving a certain way, why you're reacting a certain way and how you could possibly, you know, get a more positive result out of what it is you're going through. So, mm -hmm. so for somebody looking in on the outside, you've got a full-time job, you've got kids, how do you find the time to write a novel every year on top of that? <laughs> I don't watch much TV. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, I I catch the train to work, so that's a big upside. I, I, um, I've been a bit lazy lately and YouTube is my downfall. I'll go, I'll just, just watch this one thing and then spend the whole half hour train ride just skimming dumb videos, which is great. It's also good to give myself that time off and a lot of the YouTube channels I watch, uh, whether they're doing it comically and they're making fun of, um, movies or books or whatever, but they also have a certain level of um, critique to them, so it makes me think about how movies and books and stories are put together. But yeah, I do. I write on the train. I try to write in the evenings. That's not very conducive at home lately with the said small humans hanging off me if they haven't gone to bed. Uh, in the earlier days when my kids slept a lot more, sometimes I would write. Uh, when they're asleep but honestly I, I don't have a lot of hobbies so I read and I write um, and uh, yeah I, I don't um, don't do a whole lot else that sounds really boring I, I'm not a boring person I do do a lot I'm just busy I'm very busy so no you're just keeping it simple as well you're focusing on your main passion the yeah. other thing is do you set like a, a word count every day or like how do you get the actual amount of words up to scratch? I have in the past. It depends on my routine and that's changed a lot in the last few years. So as I said, when my kids were younger and once especially my son was actually sleeping in the day, which he didn't at first, um, I would try get all the things I could done I could get done while he was awake and then when he was asleep I would sit down and go, right, I've got an hour, try bash out a thousand words, whether they were good or bad, didn't matter. I just had to get the word count. Uh, I find that a lot harder these days. So I do have to be diligent. If I get on the train, open up the laptop and go, right, I've got half an hour, try write five hundred words. I try I think for a while I was aiming for yeah, 5,000 words a week, which is, if you're writing five hours, five, six hours a week is doable. 
but that has to be sitting down and writing. That's not thinking about what's happening next. That's not spending any time wondering where your characters are going or what they're doing. That's just actual writing. And my last book, I actually really struggled with that because I didn't have those solid blocks of time to to do. So, yeah, it really has differed over the last uh, couple of years and I'm actually taking a bit of a break next year um, from trying to bash out a whole novel so um, I'd like to put a number of my short stories together in an anthology and just write write some stuff for fun not that my novels aren't fun but they're also they're a lot of work and I do take them seriously so it'll be nice to have a bit of a break from doing that yeah I was going to ask like how do you find the balance between having structure in place that you get stuff done without actually ending up hating something that you initially enjoyed doing uh, I find the structure I need is loose enough so I don't go into anxiety attacks about not hitting a certain word count each week. I tend to go with monthly um, deadlines. So say, for instance, uh, November is when I like to get my book out because uh, I do the um, Supernova event here in Brisbane in November. It's a great – it's like Comic-Con. Um, and that there's a lot of uh, popular works of fiction, movies, books, everything. So November's my target deadline. Also, it's a nice time of year. If, um, people, I like to do book signings uh, at some bookstores and people come in looking panicked and go, my niece or my nephew likes to read. I need to, I need to get them a book. And that's, they're often a nice gift idea. Uh, so I usually try start writing a book December, January. I like to have first draft finished by April. Uh, I do editing through April, May, June. I like to give it to my beta readers. I have about six or seven of those at the moment. And then July, August, I give it to my editor. August, September, I give it to my proofreader. Um, and that leaves me October for formatting, getting it ready, and then printing. So takes me to November again so as even if I don't hit a you know I've hit 30,000 words by you know the end of January I sometimes I'll make that up sometimes I'll lose a bit of time it doesn't matter but as long as I'm roughly on track month by month that that works best for me. Mm. Sounds quite streamlined there now so like did it take you long to have that streamlined process in place? I'm just thinking for somebody listening in they'll be thinking you need to do this this and this but I don't think in reality it works like no, that. No you don't. No, no, no. This is just what works for me and it's something that uh, partly is to do with when I had my son was born in September 2015 and my daughter was born in December 2017. So that's kind of how it coincided of when I started writing a book and when I got a book out. Um, that's what works for me. But I know people who churn out a book in a lot shorter time than that or take a lot longer and it really doesn't matter that structure's worked for me because if I, I used to be the kind of person at university if I didn't have my essay ready to hand in a week before it was due I'd be panicking whereas my brother would stay up all night the night before and smash out a report and then hand it in you know five minutes before the cutoff I, I can't do that that makes me feel sick just think about it so for me that structure of knowing that I'd have a few weeks buffer at the end you know I had to have the books 
in my house, ready to go, then I was I was fine. So I need I need to be ready ahead of time. That works for me. But for other people, I mean, it, the best thing about um, publishing independently, because I am self-published, uh, is that you've only got your own deadline to work with. So it, you know, it's as strict or as loose as you want it to be. And I think it helps knowing what kind of person you are. I do work well with that loose structure um, and giving myself a target of a book a year for five years has really helped me. But for other people, yeah, it could be completely different and they might really need that creative kind of ambience to to get the work out. Um, Whereas I've learned, I've definitely, like this is quite a few years worth of practice to streamline it to this point. So it's definitely something uh, each writer, you know, try a few different techniques and work out for themselves. Mm-hmm. So I know there's some people who will write a book, but they don't actually publish it. Like, did you have any reservations or any resistance to actually publishing it once you had the book done? Uh, from Reservations from myself? Yeah, and how did you overcome them if you did? Oh, God. Yeah, I, it took me a lot to actually let anyone else read it. Uh, because I was terrified they'd turn around and say it was rubbish. Um, it, yeah, I just had to take a take a leap eventually and just prepare myself that people would criticise it. But I was also afraid of getting feedback from friends who I was scared they would be too nice and not give it enough criticism. So it's a, it's a horrible line of you want people to critique it but don't be too mean about it. Yeah. You still want enough um, enough encouragement. And part of my first book's publishing experience, I, I went to an organisation, I suppose you'd, you could call them a vanity publisher in that they're a pay-for-publish service, and obviously they were quite encouraging about it. Uh, because it was to their benefit for me to pay to publish through them. But they were also pretty, um, they're a small business, they were pretty genuine people. So their own inexperience uh, has shone through the quality of my first book and my own ex- my own inexperience as well. It's definitely not all on them. Uh, so you do need a few people to look at it and go, yeah, this is all right. This this story is good. Uh, and even after my first book was published, that still took a bit to overcome because I would apologetically, you know, offer people a look and go, oh, you know, you don't have to read it if you don't want to. You might not like it. Um, and it took, you know, quite a few people going, yeah, this this is a good story. And on the flip side, quite a few people going, yeah, it's not really for me. It's a bit weird. Um, just, you know, maybe they don't like the time travel or maybe, um, yeah, history is not really their thing. So it's actually good to have that kind of feedback as well and go, yeah, not not everyone has to like it. Um, it doesn't have to be for everyone. There's enough people out there who will like it. So it's definitely a bit of a practice thing. Yeah, I've heard like, that for every person who loves it, there's also a person who hates it. It's a yeah. thing. Yeah, and you just you learn to go. Yep, yeah, okay, that's that's cool. Doesn't matter. Move on. So, how did that help? I found in my own life that that it helps to an extent that you 
you start looking at, well, if that person loves it and that person hates it, where am I getting my feelings from then? Where am I getting myself a sense of validation from? I started looking more towards self-validation rather than it being the love or hate thing. Like, have you seen your relationship with rejection and people's reactions to your books evolve over time in any way? Absolutely. I, it's good to get the rejection in a lot of ways because you realise it doesn't hurt as much as you think it will. The anticipation of rejection is awful. Um, you know, people are going to point and laugh. It'll be like that dream you had when you were a kid that you had no clothes on at school or something like that. Whereas the more people who go, oh, yeah, it wasn't really for me, you go, oh, that, that didn't sting as badly as I thought it did. And on the flip side, getting the encouragement from people who say, oh, I loved it, I love this character. Why did you kill that character? I hate you. Um, that's really satisfying. You also realise that it's enough to keep you doing the thing that you love doing. So I do ultimately write for myself and having other people love it is, is an awesome plus. Uh, it's, when you get feedback with writing Say, for instance, there's a word and uh, one of your beta readers says, no, I don't like that word, jars me out of the story. And another beta reader says, oh, I love that word. That, oh, it's, you know, really, really good, just perfect for the scenario. If you, if you get five people who say, no, nah, I hate it, and only one person who says they love it, you should probably think about taking it out. But the, at the end of the day, you're the writer. You're the one who gets to decide whether it's in or out. If you get one person who hates it and one person who loves it and you love it, well, stuff the person who hates it. It's your book. You can keep it in. So you do learn to trust your instincts a bit better and, and learn that, no, not everyone's going to like that and that's okay. I'm Enough people will like it and I like it because at the end of the day you have to be happy with what, mm. what you're producing, what you're doing. Yeah, you have to navigate all that. And, and then there's quotes from like Steve Jobs and quotes from Henry Ford about if I, well, Henry Ford is like, if people, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses instead of cars. But so uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's a weird one, but I think it's true experience that you figure this out for yourself. So you Absolutely. also do short stories as well as novels. And you talk, you've got uh, two stories in particular, the job and the voice where you talk about your own experience with postnatal depression. I just want to talk about like, how did, writing those stories help you and even help your readers as well in hindsight? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, the, the first story, The Job, I was invited to write for uh, an anthology, a local anthology, and the anthology that it was in, was, the theme was obliquity, so stories that were a bit skew if, a bit uh, different or they had a twist. I mean, a lot of good short stories will have a twist at the end. And um, so for me, I wrote about this character who was struggling with her new job and she was just dying on the inside because this job was so much harder than she ever thought it was going to be. And, you know, she was on call at all hours and her boss would scream at her but she was so terrified of saying something because she wanted this job and she was so terrified people would say, well, why did you quit your old job? You wanted this. You asked for this. You're not coping now. She was so terrified that people would see her as a failure. And it was very much reflective of my own experiences when I 
had my son, I, I didn't love him when he was first born and I had so many people telling me, oh, it's so beautiful when you first hold them in your arms. I remember feeling so protective of him and being absolutely petrified that anything would happen to him but I didn't have that overwhelming sense of love and that's actually a lot more common than people think but it's not talked about as much. Uh, postnatal depression is spoken about a lot more but it's so very common and there's still a lot of stigma around what do you mean you don't love your child? What do you mean you don't love motherhood? It's, you know, it's meant to be this beautiful, fulfilling experience and it was hell for me. So that short story was me getting this job where I worked 24-7 and my boss screamed at me at all sorts of hours and I felt like the biggest failure in the world because I couldn't do it how I thought it was meant to be done. I didn't enjoy it. I I was so scared. I was actually, I was really scared I was going to hurt my son and that was an awful, awful feeling because I felt like the worst human being in the world and I was scared that not only would I hurt him by accident, I was scared I was going to hurt him on purpose and that is the first time I ever admitted that, I thought that the nurse was going to call up the child health services and have my kid taken away from me because what kind of a monster would do that? But fortunately, I was, I was really, really lucky. The system here, they um, send around midwives and child health nurse, nurses for quite a few weeks after you have a baby and check up on you. And the one day where a nurse came, asked me how I was, and I was so used to lying to people. I was so used to saying, oh, yeah, it's hard, you know, not enough sleep, but isn't that what everyone goes through? You know, can't complain kind of thing and I was just having a terrible day and my son was screaming and screaming and he wouldn't sleep and I just cried at the nurse and she was so good she's like okay we're gonna give your GP a call we're gonna make an appointment we're gonna get the mental health nurse out here we're gonna book you into sleep school and then finding out that I was so normal there's so many other people going through this and talking to people who thought that this was meant to be this beautiful, wonderful experience and it was just absolute, it was hell. And that helped me get to a point where I could write some of those feelings down and the twist to the story is obviously you find out that this character, her job is she's had a baby and she's not coping, but she gets help because she reaches out for help. And I didn't actually reach out for help and I think it's really, really hard or someone with anxiety or depression to reach out because you're so stuck in your own head. I was lucky that I had someone catch me. I was lucky that I had a support network around that caught me. But even my friends and family didn't know how badly I was, I was suffering inside my own head. So I was really, really lucky that I was caught and got support and got help. And then when I wrote this story and... It ended up being accepted into this anthology and I also also read it out and just put it up as a video on Facebook and I had so many people contact me and said, mm-hmm, me too. Yep, I felt like that. Know how you're feeling. And women my own age, women a lot older than me who 
particularly, you know, a generation ago, you definitely wouldn't have spoken about this sort of a thing. And I had so many people reach out to me because I had put myself out there, which was a really hard thing to do, but it was also really freeing in a lot of ways and saying, yep, this was me. I wasn't coping. It was shite. Um, And I was able to help some other people because they they also knew what it felt like to feel so alone. So, um, whereas, and the second, the second story, the voice, again, I was invited to uh, submit for this anthology where the theme was the evil inside us. And some people wrote about alcoholism or murder or dose. And for me, I wrote about anxiety because that is the evil inside me. It's, it's the voice in my head that says you are worthless. You are a failure. You're an imposter. You, you know, everyone looks at you and go, oh, aren't you clever writing books? And, you know, you've got a job and you've got two beautiful children. And there's still this voice in my head that says you are a failure and they're all going to find out and nobody will like you. And I know enough now to look at that voice and go, no, you are anxiety. I hear you. You have your place, but I don't have to listen to you now. So both of those stories were very, very cathartic for me to get those experiences out. And I've definitely, definitely had a lot of people reach out to me now. So I hope if, even if they've helped one other person, that's, that would be really um, wonderful to know. Mm. That's, 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 um, it's really brave of you to do that. And I read those stories too, and it's, uh, it does give you an insight into what you were going through there and um, how alone somebody could feel as well if they're going through that and not realizing that it's quite common. So, um, oh, yes, yes. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's good stuff. So, yeah, so, like... After all that heavy stuff. No, 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 it's good, it's good. It's good to get that stuff out. Like, I found just from my own experience that when you get that kind of burden, that weight off you, that it gives you a lot of psychological freedom. Like there's a healing process. Like it takes time to, to heal from this stuff. But if you bottle them up for so long, it's like it just doesn't go anywhere. It just suppresses and it, it comes out in ways that you don't want it to come out. In. So, um, mm, absolutely. Yeah. And um, the more you talk about it, I mean, I can speak about it quite calmly now, but the first few times it was still reliving that experience um, was quite, you know, I can read those stories again and they still make me feel sick because I still remember that feeling. Um, and that's not a, not a terrible thing because it, it does mean that they are that accessible, that they do, um, people can connect with them because they're, they're very real of what I was feeling. But um, yeah, the more you talk about it, the less painful it, it becomes and, and you can, yeah, put a bit of an emotional distance between you and it and, uh, yeah, hopefully get somewhere a bit more positive in your, in your mind. Yeah, it's the distance. It's like, because there is no real choice here. It's like either you suppress it and it comes out subconsciously when you're not aware to it mm. or you mm-hmm. own it and heal from it, even though that's a tougher option. At least you're living more consciously instead of living unconscious to what has happened. Sorry, I was going to say, this is the thing. I mean, people talk about, you know, 
mental health issues being a lot more common these days, I have no idea whether they are or not. They're certainly a lot more spoken about these days, which I think is a good thing. And for me, recognising things like my anxieties, it's simply part of my life and it's simply something that I will always deal with and that's okay. That's not a terrible thing. It's manageable. Um, it's not something I need to defeat or eradicate it's it's still part of my identity and um but just not letting it control so it's like you say a lot more you're a lot more conscious about how you are and how you're living your life mm. i think what's helped me is the understanding it's like understanding more taking the time out to understand why am i feeling anxious rather than because when i've tried to Absolutely. judge it before and stuff and resist it it just creates more anxiety but when you come mm-hmm. understanding understanding and acceptance I found it does help a bit more than, than the, the resistance and the suppression. So, um, Especially when you're an intelligent person and you can see yourself being anxious and you know the techniques, um, especially, you know, I, I've seen a few different psychologists across the years for, for different reasons when my parents were divorcing or um, when I was a moody, depressed teenager at school. And you know the techniques and you're still stuck on this rat wheel where you're still anxious and then you feel guilty and stupid because you're still anxious and you just feel trapped so I think getting to that point where you can stop step away a bit and that actually helps you step off the wheel um yeah that's really really helpful mm-hmm. so like even even reading the, the first time you read that story like was it tough for you to read it and like what was it like when you finished reading the story the first time in public you can, I think I can dig up the recording somewhere on my Facebook uh, or on YouTube. Uh, you can hear the tears in my voice. Uh, I get a bit choked towards the end of it when me, the main character, says, I'm not coping, I'm scared. And, uh, yeah, it's, it still reminds me of how I feel. Um, it, was, it was really hard reading it that first time. Uh, but very honest as well. Anyone listening to it couldn't have doubted that I meant what I said. So mm, real, I, st- yeah. I still wouldn't want to read it out in public um, without psyching myself up a bit because it's still a pretty pretty raw experience, even a few years on. Mm. Well, that's true. You wouldn't be a human being. You wouldn't have went through it if there wasn't like strong emotions there. But uh, no, it's, it's good. It's good to, to face these things. And, and by facing them, and by accepting them, by understanding them more, that's how you overcome them. That's how I feel. That's exactly what I say to my characters. <laughs> cool. So that's kind of, that's, kind of uh, that's quite cool that you've got the short stories and you've got the novel and, and like it's all intersecting. And, and that for listening to you, I feel that writing is like a way for you to... Uh, create that I guess because you spoke at the start about like you're a dreamer I guess the, the novels are getting that aspect out in yourself and then the, the short story is helping to understand yourself better balance yourself out and that's what I'm getting definitely from yeah, yeah definitely it was great to hear your story I think it, it'll be encouraging for somebody who's got thoughts around writing and just just doing it and taking action and it, it was funny to hear at the start where you were in love with the idea of writing rather than being a writer and from owning that you became a writer that's quite encouraging. Well, the number of people you meet who, who say, oh, I'd love to write a book uh, or 
even the ones who, who do write. And that, that's great. You don't have to write for the sake of being published. You can just write for yourself. Just, you know, even if you're writing short stories or fan fiction or, you know, comics or screenplays, whatever, you know, makes you happy, really. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, I hope it doesn't ever come across as intimidating when I outline my process because that's something I definitely taken a couple of years to get to but it also makes you realize that the sooner you start the sooner you're going to be a year in or two years in or three years in and then you've got all that wonderful experience behind you and you can look back and cringe at your first efforts which I still do but if you don't start you yeah you don't get that experience you don't get in and it's the only thing that that makes you better and you might get to a point where you're like oh yeah I've, I've done this don't like this try something else but um yeah it, at the end of the day, it's something I love doing. It's it's something I enjoy doing, and I get all these other wonderful, you know, positive benefits out of it. And I get to talk about it, which is is mm. one of the most fun things. But uh, yeah, it's just I hope anyone listening to this who thinks that oh yeah I might be able to do that, I, I hope they, you know, find it, find the time, find the courage, find the um, inspiration to just start and just to to start writing. Mm-hmm. So how would people find you online and uh, find your books? Yes, I uh, am at jodielane.com. So it's J-O-D-I-E-L-A-N-E.com is my website. Uh, all my work colleagues who are developers laugh at it because it's very old school looking, but I'm quite proud of it because I built it myself. It does the job. It has my books. It's very straightforward. You can buy the books. Uh, all the Ebooks are available on quite a few different platforms. They're on Amazon, Smashwords, Nook, Kobo, uh, Google Playbooks, all of them. Uh, so, yeah, you can, if you search author Jodie Lane, I'll come up and any of the books are from the website, they've also got links to all the different um, ebook providers like Amazon uh, and you can buy them through there. Uh, or if, obviously, not all listeners will be, but in my local area, there are actually quite a few schools and libraries and bookstores. So I'm starting my empire small and building outwards. Sounds good. Tony, any final message before we leave? Ah, no, I'm just really grateful for having a chance to talk to you. I've really enjoyed this. Me too. Cool. So thanks again, Jodie. Thanks for sharing your experience and giving us some insights into the writing process and your own journey so far, owning your story and how that's helped you in your life. So thanks again for being here. Thank you so much, Dennis. So, so next time, until next time, have fun and enjoy the process.